the sounds like a search and rescue podcast i'm mike your co-host and i'm stomp your other co-host today we're going to talk about a topic that's very close to our hearts search and rescue operations that's right stomp search and rescue is a critical aspect of emergency response and can often mean the difference between life and death absolutely mike in today's episode we're going to discuss the various techniques used in search and rescue operations including ground search That's a great topic, Stomp. Let's start with ground search. Can you give us an overview of what ground search entails? Sure, Mike. Ground search involves a team of search and rescue personnel who physically search an area on foot, looking for any signs of missing persons. This can include tracking, searching buildings and structures, and searching in dense forests and wilderness areas. Those are all great techniques, Stomp. It's important to have a variety of methods available for search and rescue operations to increase the chances of a successful outcome. Exactly, Mike. The safety and well-being of the missing person is top priority, and having a variety of techniques at our disposal gives us the best chance of finding them as quickly as possible. That's a great way to wrap up today's episode, Stomp. Thank you for joining us for Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast. Until next time, stay safe and keep searching. ChatGPT is boring as hell. <laughs> that was hilarious. It's so I silly. Actually, do you know? I actually blame you, Stomp, because you have to you have to talk to ChatGPT in a certain way to get the right vibe. And I feel yeah. like you didn't put the effort in. Well, the, the query I put in was create a complete dialogue between co-hosts Mike and Stomp for the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast, and that's what it spit out. And it's the the best part about it is the last line to me. Just stay safe and keep searching. <laughs> Clearly, ChatGPT has to do some more uh, learning on the fly here about how to write dialogue. So I was actually going to, I, could, I couldn't get in. So I couldn't get into ChatGPT, but I was going to cut and paste the entire script of this, this show and ask yeah. them to do like a, um, like a three-paragraph intro. Or a three-sentence intro and boil it down to that. So I'm going to try oh, that once I get that? access to it. I, oh, yeah, you can do that and you can do anything. Huh, interesting. I didn't know that. That's funny. Anyway. But there you um, go. All right. So, Andy, do you want to get all of your swear words out of your system before we start? Or are you going to be okay? They're gone. I'll be fine. I'll behave. They're gone? I'll behave. Okay. We will set this as an explicit rating. So if you <laughs> slip, it's fine. 
Okay. Um, so, Stomp, we have a ton of stuff to get to here. So, welcome, Andy. We'll introduce you shortly. Um, so, I think the first thing, Stomp, we released the. There's a segment of the show that we did last week that just sort of goes through the search and rescue report that we had put together. So we released that on video so people can follow along on the slides. It's on YouTube. There's a link on our Facebook and Instagram. So, um, and it's also, I think, on our uh, our link tree. So go nuts if you want to learn more about search and rescue. Uh, I don't know anything else to add on that. Well, I'm hearing rumors that um, people out there have some questions about it. So I s- suggested that I mention it now so that people can direct message us and uh, let us know what questions they had or if they had any other insight regarding the data. But yeah, it's up on the link tree and it's up on YouTube. So uh, it's easy enough to find. And uh, so far, the response has been pretty cool, Mike. Very good. And then uh, the other thing we've got sl- floating out there is the slasher golden gator award so this is a survey specific to the white mountains where we're looking for like answers on like 40 different things and we're going to give out awards to like the best mountain and the best i don't know tent right yeah it's a joke it's it's a joke based on the oscars you're not getting anything people but uh there's a lot of uh submissions so far i think we're up or almost approaching 50 plus submissions so it's going to be really fun so that the week of the 10th we'll announce the winners and uh if you follow the link tree again you can uh follow that and find the submission form and put in all your answers so it's pretty awesome so far there's uh definitely some trends starting to form up now which is great that's what we're looking for that's good. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. Um, on to our next topic here. So Puxatani Phil, who is, um, this, this is a, for people that aren't familiar with who Puxatani Phil is, it's a groundhog that resides in, is it Gobbler's Knob? Is that the name of the? <laughs> I don't I know. The name of the it's Pennsylvania, right? It's in Pennsylvania. Yeah. And yeah, um, I have no idea. So they take this thing out <laughs> of its like hole. And then if it sees its shadow, that means what, six more weeks of, of winter? Correct. Yep. So we're stuck for another six weeks, whatever that means. So it saw it all ends at the same time. So essentially, if you, I was explaining this to like one of the one of my coworkers in Poland, and I thought I was like educating her, and I was like, oh, you know, it's all about like if it sees its shadow. So I go through this long explanation, and then um, she was like, yeah, we know, we know about Groundhog Day. (laughs) So. I was like, oh, I apologize. And I said, well, did you know there's a movie? And she's like, that's why we know about Groundhog Day. Oh, geez. Yeah. Yeah. The classic. Yeah, exactly. Um, So (laughs) Phil definitely wanted to make sure that we knew winter was still here. So we had a record-breaking weekend on Mount Washington stomp. So we got to, Mm. was it an ambient air temperature of negative 47 degrees? Correct. Yeah, the base temp. And then um, minus 110 wind chill. Uh, yeah, I think it went for, I think the final was like between 101 to 109, uh, minus 110 in that area for wind chill for a 15 hour sustained period, which is incredible. I think the record was 1932 or, you know, in that ballpark. Um, so that's, that's an amazing thing when you think about it. I've never experienced anything like that. No, I think the coldest that I've experienced is probably that trip that we did over the um, Liberty and Flume that day. That must have been like minus 30, minus 40 wind chill, I would guess. Right. Yeah, just wind chill, though. It's incredible when you think about minus 110. Like, holy moly. Yeah. Yeah. So dangerous. 
Yeah, a couple things here that came out in the news that I thought was interesting. So Mount Washington was as cold as Mars. And mm-hmm. then it also, typically the stratosphere, I think, is around 20,000 feet of elevation. Um, so when you climb yeah. like Mount Everest or whatever, you're actually up into the stratosphere. But it was such a cold vortex that it pulled the troposphere down below the summit of Mount Washington. So for that period of time, Mount Washington summit was actually in the stratosphere level of the atmosphere, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. It shifted levels. Yeah. Crazy. Exactly. So Andy, um, how cold does it get in Missouri? Does it ever reach those temperatures? Nothing like that. Not even, not even close. So we had a pretty cold snap for us a few weeks ago and I think we got to about negative two, and then with wind chill, negative twenty, negative thirty. That's very, very cold for us. Yeah, I feel mm-hmm. like we're streaky. Like we'll have these weekends or these three, four day periods. But I do feel like in the Midwest, particularly the Upper Midwest, so a little bit away from you guys, like I feel like they have much more sustained. Like they'll have like a week or two weeks period where they're like in the crazy wind chills. But right, and I'm I'm in the St. Louis area, and it had been a few years since we got into the negative numbers. Okay, so you're a little warmer down yes. over there. Um, Stomp, I wanted to ask you. When weekends like this happen, do you, does fishing game or do you know? I don't even know if you know. Do like uh, law enforcement and fishing game? Do they like scan the parking lots to see if there's any crazy hikers out there at, at, at night, or do you know what what the deal is there? I can't say if it's policy, but I have heard anecdotally officers saying that they stop by this or that. Uh, trailhead just to check. Um, I've heard that several times, but I do not know if it's like an official policy. Um, who knows? I mean, given their their job title, uh, it very well could be. Yeah. And did you did you go out to West Welsh Dickey to test test your gear? No, no, I did not have a chance um, because of the snowmobiling. Um, well, well, actually, <laughs> no, the snowmobiling was canceled, but not for Sunday. But that weekend, I said, nah, not worth the risk, so I stayed in, really? just manned the fire for forty eight hours straight. Yeah, I did go out locally. I took all my gear. I was like, I'm going to try it out. So it was mm-hmm. negative seven. And then I we have like this, we have a lot of trails in the town that I live in, uh, but we do have this open farm. So I was able to get a little bit of wind chill going as well. And I hadn't, I really hadn't hiked a super cold conditions in the mountains. I think I did one other trip up to Mount Jackson with my friend Tom, but um I, I had everything going, so I put the goggles on. One thing I noticed, my goggles started fogging up. So I think if you're going out hiking in these conditions, like what I noticed is when I would sort of put my head down for whatever reason, even though I had a good seal on my goggles, I would still get a little bit of condensation in there. And then once it's in there, it would freeze right up. So I had one side of my my goggles just like completely blocked out. Hmm. That's right. Do you have the uh, the deep ventilation or is it like a really thin ventilation? No, I have like really expensive, nice goggles that I use for skiing. And I just I just like put my head down and breathe. I just was breathing like two, I think, right up into them. And the wind was sort of pushing back into it. And it just, it got in there. So it makes me think like if you're going to play around above tree line, like you got to have two pairs of goggles because you don't want to risk messing around with only one pair. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's a standard. <clears throat> I think it was um 
a trip I went up um, Adams with Nick Rallo that I really came to that determination because I was running into some goggle issues. And uh, I think that was the first time I actually brought two pair. And um, thank God I did because we got sort of hit in a squall. And, uh, you know, stuff like that could make a big difference in, a um, you know, being a, a rescue mission or not. So... Yeah, the nice and if you've never hiked like above tree line with goggles, like and I made these mistakes before. Like a lot of times when you're skiing, like you're used to putting goggles like on your helmet or on your forehead or whatever. Like you never want to do that when you're hiking, because what ends up happening is if you put the goggles directly on your forehead for an extended period of time, like the sweat will just start flowing off your head and it'll condensate inside the goggles and it's, it becomes a mess. So you always mm-hmm. want to keep them in your pocket. Keep the goggles cold until you put them on your face. That's what I, I tell people. Yeah. So, and then having two pairs is good because if you've got one that does frost up, take that one off, let it get cold, and once the condensation gets really freezing, you can kind of scrape it off with your fingers and then use it again mm-hmm. in the future. So, anyway, the yeah. other thing that I did run into, Stomp, is I had my outer, sh- I had a fleece, I had my down jacket, and then I had a shell on. And I did about five miles in this cold weather. And when I came back, like my down jacket was pretty soaked. So that's another thing to sort of keep in mind is if you're going to have your shell over your down jacket for an extended period of time, it's a little risky. Like you don't have a lot of distance that you can go with that because you are going to generate a lot of sweat that way. Where were you? Would you go again? Just local? I just went local. I did, I did like the local, I have like a trail system and we have this place in Amesbury called Woodsome Farms which is a yeah. great area, but it's a big open field. So you get hit with wind, like the wind's always coming hard. So it was a good testing. Huh. Ground. Wow. That's crazy. Oh, did I tell you it was so cold that we had to chop up our piano for firewood? Dude, we only got two chords. Oh, that's awful. <laughs> Andy, I apologize for him. <laughs> I, I was just going to ask if guests are allowed to boo or if that's verboten. Or... You, you, are, you are welcome to boo. Welcome to boo. Um, but yeah, Mount Washington. So New England was the coldest place on earth on Friday night. So we're very proud of that. Um, also, there was a dude, there's a live cam up on the observatory. And there was a dude that came rolling in right at 12 o'clock in the afternoon, hiked up solo by himself. So I don't know what the wind chill was on Saturday afternoon at noontime, but it was probably like negative 50, I would think. Mm. So who who is this person? Do we know? I don't know if he's listening. So if you're the guy that was rolling up there at noontime on Saturday, get in touch with us. We want to interview you. Wow. That's crazy. If you were to do it, how would you go? See, I think I would go up auto oh, road. No question. I would go up Amanusa. Oh, I'm thinking safer, like auto road. Like I'm not going to mess around with trails in that weather. Well, I think the other, re- the, I wouldn't, I don't think the auto road is not really feasible because it's not going to be broken out. So you're not to mention like just so that no one comes out. It's like, you can't use the auto road in the winter. It's illegal. Um, but you can, I would go up the cog railroad would be the way to go. Oh, yeah, but that's the windy side. I'm thinking like just logistically the the lee side would probably be safest or even the winter lion's head, you know, because it was the wind chill that was the main factor. But yeah, that's true. 
Hats off to that crazy person, whoever that was. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would personally, I would do Amanusik up and then the cog down, regardless of the mm-hmm. wind situation. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't have gone up. But dude's a, a maniac. But that brings me to sort of the social media aspect of this. So I usually try to stay off social media, but I was bad this week because I was just listening to everybody. I have the, and Andy, you must have these like dynamics in social media and in the Ozarks as well. And we're going to talk about that, but I have a whole list of the sort of social media archetypes around all the discussions of the cold weather. Cause it was a ton of people getting online, like don't hike, don't do this, or I'll hike if I want to hike. So stop. I want you, I want to read down the list of the archetypes on social media. So number one is the cautioner. So this is the one that always sort of puts the weather report up and says like, stay inside, don't put search and rescue at risk. You know, um, so there's the, the cautioner. Then you get the crusty old school person that basically says, back in my day, no one needed to tell people what to do. So the crusty old school person gets mad at the cautioner for telling people to be safe. Um, then you've got the contrarian or what I like to call the live free or die person, which is that guy that went up on Saturday. He's the one or she's the one that's saying, I'm going out. No one's going to tell me what to do. Right. <laughs> right. Then you've got the comedian. Uh, and that's the one that's sort of like jumping in and saying like, oh, does anyone know what the weather's going to be like this weekend? I'm, I'm thinking about hiking, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> And then I'm sort of like this guy, the scientist, like the forecasting geek who's talking about how the troposphere is dropping down. So, um, and then there was, I'm also this one too, is the conciliatory person that's like, it's best to stay inside, but it's also not a bad idea to test your gear in this weather. So do, you know, it could go either way. Yeah. I'm sort of like that. Yeah. And then the last archetype on social media about the whole cold weather situation is the everybody shut up. I don't want to hear this anymore. Um, person. So yeah, that's a good uh, summary. Yeah. How does that line up? <laughs> Do those archetypes line up pretty well, Andy, in your opinion? It is, it is about the same. I, I sort of fall in the middle of a couple of them. I end up with the whole theory of if you know what you're doing and you have the right gear and you know how to be safe, have a good time, but otherwise stay home. Going to, you know, endanger people who have to come find you. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's sort of what I said too, was I was like, you know, pick your spot. There's some places you can go that are safe and, you know, but just don't, don't put anybody at risk. Hmm. Good stuff. All right, Stomp. What else you got here? What's on the, the script? Oh, there's um, a proposed expansion up at uh, the Balsams up in Coas County, which is way up north in like Dixville, uh, Dixville Peak area. And um, they're saying that this thing could be like one of the biggest ski areas in the region. um, And it would bring a tremendous amount of commerce to the region. So um, I just saw this earlier today. So keep a lookout. That's uh, some interesting news. We'll, We'll put a link up. Yeah, and I see a fair amount of advertisements for the balsams. I know they're trying to get um, some early investors into the either timeshare or condo ownership up there. So, Andy, for your reference, the balsams, you would probably know this. Or you'll, you'll, I think you'll probably say, oh, I've heard of this. But it, it, when the, uh, the presidential elections happen, there's like a small town in northern New Hampshire that's the first town to vote, Dixville Notch. 
typically they vote at this Balsams Resort or okay. somewhere around okay. there. So, and it's it's kind of a rundown old resort that used to be a grand resort up in the mountains here, um, and they've been trying to get investors to rehab it and build like a you know an, a new resort area, but they've been struggling a little bit to find funding. So ho- hopefully we'll see something happen there. Um, yeah, I hope so. Yeah. All right, Tom. So the next thing I had here was, and I pulled this up. Originally, you had this in the Search and Rescue News, but I wanted to just pull this article up. So this was an article that came in Backpacker Magazine or Outside Magazine, whatever. I think they're both owned by the same place. But this, the, t- the title of this is New Hampshire's Bad Search and Rescue Policy May Be About to Get Worse. Um, so mm-hmm. I guess the thesis of this article is that um, New Hampshire is one of the only states in the nation that regularly makes hikers, it deems negligent, pay for their own rescue. And now legislatures, we've talked about this, are considering sort of doubling down and suspending driver's licenses if if people don't pay their fines. The editor um, or the writer of this is saying that it's a dangerous policy and that, um, you know, I think a couple of points here is – that um, you know, they don't want anybody to, you know, be hesitant to call search and rescue, and that like the national organizations uh, both take the position that the fear of being hit with thousands of dollars in bills could cause stricken hikers, climbers, or paddlers to pull uh, put off calling for help. So um, I guess there are in Colorado. There's like 18 specific examples of people that did actually hold off on calling for search and rescue due to their worries over cost. Um, I think Colorado... How do they know that? I don't know, but I think the the volume of rescues in Colorado was probably three to four times the volume in New Hampshire. So I, I don't know how viable it is. So Yeah, that's sort of interesting. Like, what's your evidence? I, I just thought the tenor of the article was so negative. And so without, like, full context, um, I was actually really disappointed reading the article in general, but sorry to interrupt. No, that's fine. And I sort of thought it was a little bit sort of down on, I think it's, you know, it's a component of search and rescue, but it's such a small volume of people you're talking about. Like, yeah, like I said, 200 rescues a year, you maybe have like um, 10 to 12 people total that are going to be deemed negligent and have to pay a fine. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's a lot of time and effort focused on this very small population of people that it's almost, it's so unlikely that you're going to be involved in something like this, that it's not worth the time and effort. I think that I go back to some of the stuff we covered last week around, you know, education around 50 year old or older men getting, um, you know, more proactive around getting scans on their, their cardiac system so they don't drop dead of a heart attack on trails or educating people on how to do field medicine with splints so that they're not dealing with um, needing to call someone in a lower leg injury situation where they might be able to get themselves out on their own. Not obviously not all lower leg injury is going to be like that, but there's a percentage that would be. I feel like it'd be better to spend more time and effort talking about those things that can make a bigger impact on the total number of search and rescue calls that happen. Mm I also have a beef with this writer because he makes the claim that search and rescue calls are ballooning in volume and he includes no source to back it up. And basically I had to dig down into how he sourced that information and he referenced an AMC blog post um, 
that essentially said that the cost of search and rescue was increasing, but the volume of search and rescue is not increasing. It's just, it can, it can vary. Like if you have three big rescues that require helicopters, then your overall cost for search and rescues can balloon, but the number doesn't go up and it hasn't gone up. It's been flat for like 10 or 15 years now. Correct. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's complicated. Anyway, yeah. not impressed. <laughs> nope, me neither. Yeah. Not a big fan of that article, mm. but um, they usually do good stuff, so I'm not going to knock them. I got another article from them coming up later that I think is pretty good yeah. about Bigfoot, so we'll oh. they'll redeem themselves. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Going to pure speculation. Uh, yeah, next up, and I'm going to share my screen so Andy can look at this too in a minute, but... Um, there is drama brewing in Conway, New Hampshire. So, Andy, Conway, New Hampshire is one of these, like, uh, cute little mountain towns that um, that we, uh, you know, we, we spend a lot of time up in New Hampshire in. So, let me share my screen just to get a reaction from you guys. Uh, but essentially what this is, is there's this little donut shop in uh, North Conway, and yeah, you can look at the link there, Andy. Little donut shop in North Conway that um, when you go into, you go Route 16, you take a left and you head into town. It's on the left-hand side. It's called Levitt's Country Bakery. And um, the place was just bought by a new owner a couple of years ago. The new owner, nice guy, he wanted to um, basically update the frontage on his building he worked with the local high school students to come up with an idea for um, a mural to go in the front of the the store. So he didn't. He basically said to the students, "Like I don't, I don't want to dictate anything. You guys decide what you're going to make." So the students did an excellent job with the mural. It's basically like a sun with the sun streaks coming behind it, and then there's a variety of different donuts that actually represent the mountains of uh, New Hampshire. So. He's now dealing with, so it looks great. Unfortunately, the code enforcer in Conway um, looked up the regulations and indicated that murals are allowed, but if they tie into the specific offerings of the business, mm -hmm. they cease to become a mural and they become a business sign. And this sign, and this is no, no longer compliant with the zoning laws around business signs. Mm -hmm. So, they're threatening to fine him like $250 a day if he doesn't remove the mural that the high school kids put together. I guess, I mean, legally they, they can do the, the content, you know, restrictions and whatnot if there's a, a, a valid reason for it. But it is a First Amendment issue, I suppose. But you're dealing with all these business regulations and things. It'll be interesting. looks like they're taking it to a, a federal lawsuit, correct? Correct. Yeah. So the owner, Sean Young, and definitely go check this place out. I've been in here. It's really good. Definitely check this place out when you go into the mountains. But um, yeah, he basically, I think he's, he was interviewed. He's got a pretty good attitude about it. He's kind of like laughing about it. He's like, look, I think it's a good civics lesson for the students that are involved in this. And, you know, he's just like, look, this is a sort of a First Amendment type huh. of situation. And he's also saying that... Um, you know, the, the code enforcer could just sort of like look the other way. They don't have to be such hard asses about this if they don't want to, but. Well, they, unfortunately, it seems in, inconsistent. Depending on what the regulation says, it could very well be applied in this case inconsistently against other businesses, and that could be their downfall. 
but it depends. I don't have the uh, regulation here. Yeah, yeah, I don't know the details huh. either, but um, it's a beautiful mural. And again, Levitt's Country Bakery, they got great donuts. Definitely a good place to stop if you're on your way into, into North Conway. Yeah, fight the power, get a donut. Yeah, so do you have these? It's a good way to get the kids to hate the government early in their lives, you know, as well. Start them early. <laughs> right, right. Oh, exactly. it's a good way to. There's no bad press. Like, this is a great boon for his business. <laughs> it's like all of a sudden he's going to have hundreds of thousands of dollars on a GoFundMe. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? Now, do you have these cute little bakeries in um, in the Ozarks, Andy? So we have all kinds of little places in the Ozarks. And, and, and understand the Ozarks is a very wide area. It's, you know, from basically central Missouri down into Arkansas over into Oklahoma and even touching a tiny corner of Kansas. So it's a huge area and some of it is more rural than others and you get a variety of, of things. You know, after after hikes, we stop at gas stations slash restaurants and all kinds of things to grab something to eat. Nice, there's there's yeah. everything I, out I there. I gotta get out there someday. But we'll talk we'll do a deep we're gonna do a deep dive later on in the show here. Um so oh, anyway, yes. the, the donut shop drama in Conway. And now next we've got a dog dumped in the desert. Um, so this puppy was in the desert. It's like a, it looked like a white pit bull as far as I could see. So um, people started seeing this dog along with two coyotes on game cameras. So basically the dog got lost in the desert as a puppy, got adopted by two coyotes and um, the local rescue. I feel like... Um, you know, especially in the Southwest, like there's these people that like really go out of their way to sort of rescue dogs. Um, and they were tracking the dog for a while and eventually they were able to trap it and save it. So it's currently being rehabbed. Lots of scars, lots of sort of fights, scars and injuries from sort of the dealing with the coyotes, I think. But um, it's currently being rehabbed, but it lived for, they think it's like a year old. So it lived for its first year of its life, basically being amongst the coyotes, which I thought was pretty cool. Oh, that's a neat story. I wonder if the dog wanted to be rescued. You know, was it, was it really a rescue? Was it a kidnapping? I think it was a dog napping, but I have a feeling that you're going to be fostering that dog and it's going to be sitting in your living room in a sweater, eating cooked food in about three months. I do like to foster the fur babies. Ah, yes, you do. Well, we're trying to get so, Mike a you, dog. <laughs> it's not working. I can't even get a cat. But Andy, so Andy, we might as well just get get this out on the table. So you have cats, right? Cat singular. I I had to. I jokingly called them my crazy cat lady starter pack, um, but I I lost one a few months ago. So I'm I'm I have a solo cat. You do. And what's the cat's name? Toby. Toby. And it's she's a girl. Her name uh -huh. is Toby. Okay. That makes makes sense, right? She she's a rescue, and that was her name when I got her. So, yeah, that's totes. cute. Uh, well, if you take a look in the corner of, uh, I know Stomp's background is very dark, but you'll see these white paws walking back and forth every once in a while. That's our our executive producer Daphne that <laughs> likes to come down and attack Stomp. Yeah, I just let her in the room. So I will tell you that when. When I've listened occasionally and heard you talk about Daphne, I've never been sure whether Daphne is a child. Oh, yeah. <laughs> or a or less. Can you see her? So question answered. Yes. I can. I can see the white paws more than I can the black cat, but she's cute. She's yeah, cute. Mine, mine may visit later. She may wander in. Cats are fun. 
Okay, so Stomp is now your best friend because you he found out you have a cat. <laughs> That's right. Um, so Andy, I have a I have a dumb Missouri meme that I wanted to share with you. Um, we're going to be I talking about that meme. Yeah, so Missouri has two major cities, and both of them look like they're desperately trying to get out of the state. Have you ever <laughs> seen that one before? So. So, so I have. And first, I have to say, because of one of those cities, go Chiefs, right? Like, I, ha- I have to say it, okay. go Chiefs. Because yep. you know, here in St. Louis, we have been hosed by the NFL and no longer have a team. Yes. Um, that's, a whole different, that's a whole different podcast. Yes. But um, yes. And, and so there's actually, there are jokes about there being some truth to that. Because if you look at the meme, it shows those two cities and lined up almost directly between them is Columbia, mm-hmm. which is where Mizzou is. Go Tigers. And those three cities are, not to get too far into politics, but the blue parts of the state. Yep. The rest of the state is red. And so there are jokes about those cities trying to get out of Missouri. Yes. Yeah. And I think Illinois would take St. Louis, no problem. And then um, I don't know so much about Kansas and Kansas City, but I thought that was yeah. funny. Kansas is pretty red. Yeah. 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 It is. It is funny. And there are lots of Missouri jokes out there. Yeah. Yeah. And for some reason, I don't know why I came across that, but I I, I think that um, my phone listens to me or they have some connection to see when I'm putting stuff in Google Docs or whatever, but all of a sudden, like, I did start seeing memes pop out about Missouri, and I was like, this has got to be a sign, so. Oh, my goodness. So, I I have to ask you, for the Northeast, do you all say Missouri or Missouri? Missouri, Uh, Missouri, yeah. So, outstate Missouri, the more rural areas, it's Missouri, Mm -hmm. and then other places, it's Missouri, and so it's, it's interesting watching candidates for statewide political races because depending where they are, they'll say Missouri or Missouri to cater to oh. the audience. Oh, sure. Yeah, no, I've never heard of Missouri, but we do have, we have a mountain called Musalak, mm-hmm. and it can also be called Musalaki, which I call Musalaki, but Stomp calls it Musalak. So. <laughs> Could you just call it Moose for short and that's, not that's worry about the rest? what we do. <laughs> a lot of times, yeah. A lot of times we do. So... Very good. All right. So changing topics here. And Andy, I definitely want to get your perspective on this. I picked this up and these are the types of stories where probably three years ago I wouldn't even touched. But I saw a report in one of the AT through hiking groups about um, a gentleman on the Florida Trail. So right now is where people are doing the Florida Trail. It's a little bit warmer. Um, Typically, I think the season for the Florida Trail is like December through March or something like that. And um, basically, this report was on one of the AT through hiker groups, and it was a, I'm assuming it's a lady. They included some screenshots of an exchange, and basically, they were giving a warning saying, like, there's a, there's a hiker on the Florida Trail that um, is concerning. He's, exp- he's exhibiting concerning behavior, and um, he's being aggressive towards female hikers. And I, apparently, what set this off is, you know, you've got these shelters or you've got these periods where people meet meet up and then they head off and do their hikes at their own pace. This this hiker um, apparently asked for another hiker's phone number so they could stay in touch. You know, and I understand it. You know, well, actually, I don't understand it because I'm not a woman, but apparently she gave a fake number. She must have been concerned to say, like, look, there's something a little bit off. At the same time, the hiker was in, was connected to this the hiker that gave the fake phone number was connected to their friend and um 
you know, had messaged the friend to say like, hey, I guess your friend gave me the, uh, the wrong number or something. And then I think the, the other lady was trying to be nice and say like, look, you came off a little concerning. And, you know, this guy immediately turns into like this super creepy and aggressive guy that's like, you know, I'll talk to women the way I want to. And, you know, so she posts this out on the Appalachian Trail group. All of a sudden, people are coming out of the woodwork saying like, oh, yeah, I knew this guy last year from the Appalachian Trail. He was super creepy. And I just wanted to sort of call it out because I think people do listen to this show. And, you know, some people are heading out on the Appalachian Trail. And I think 99% of the time, you don't have to worry about this stuff. But we had an incident a few years ago with a thru-hiker by the name of Sovereign that was doing this type of stuff. It was widely publicized for months before he eventually ended up killing a person. So, Hmm. um, you know, and he was on trail, he was off trail. So, again, like three years ago, I probably wouldn't even raise a story like this. But now, after knowing what happened with that other person, I think it's worth it to sort of just sort of call out that um, if you're going to be doing a through hike, um, 99% of the people out there are going to be very nice, but... There's an element sometimes of people that, for whatever reason, they're angry or they're they're concerning, and you've just got to have a little bit of sort of put your guard up a little bit, especially in the beginning, if you haven't established like a trail family or a good network. Um, especially, I think, if you're a woman, you have to be a little bit more concerned. Um, Andy, I don't know. I, I know we've sort of talked about this online in the past, but I don't know what your perspective is here. Yeah, you know, I I read that whole exchange and his take was, I'm a good looking guy and women used to approach me and I was shy and now I'm not shy anymore. So I'm going to be, you know, asking women point blank, do you want to have sex with me? And there is not a woman out there hiking that wants a random man walking up to her and saying, do you want to have sex with me while you're out on trail? I mean, it just is that that is a huge creep alert. Obviously, there's a big problem there. And just, yeah, ugly. And that's the thing, you know, so many men unintentionally can send up the flags occasionally, but that's just a clear no-brainer that any decent, rational human being should know that's not the right approach. So that tells you definitely something's off with him. Yeah, exactly. And I think ultimately, like anybody that's sort of self-reflecting in that situation would realize like, what would make sense is if he said like, hey, your your friend gave me the wrong number. Obviously, she's not interested. I'm not going to make a big thing out of it. I just wanted to sort of recognize that if I approached it incorrectly, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to offend anyone, but that he didn't go that direction at all. No, exactly. And there, you know, there are a lot of reasons that women give the wrong number, even if the person isn't creepy. Sometimes you just don't want to have to deal with the conversation of no. And particularly if you're in the middle of woods one-on-one, you don't know what the reaction is going to be when you say no. And so it's easier to just give the wrong number and move along. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that like, you probably have a better perspective on this because I think you've been down there, Andy, but like that beginning section of the AT, I think that there's a bit of a euphoria from like March and April. You get these big groups of people. Everybody sort of assumes that the motivation for people being on trail to do these three through hikes is the same as theirs, which is sort of like, I want to go on this grand adventure. And the reality is, is that there's a percentage of people that get on trail that are really lost and they're looking to find themselves and they're not going to find themselves through hiking and they're, you know, they're going to get even more lost. Um, And again, it's a small percentage, but it's worth sort of noting that you got to be careful. 
It's it's very true. I was on that section early May one year, and there were a lot of people out, section hikers, some late starting through hikers. I was with two girlfriends and, you know, we hiked our own pace. So we were going over Blood Mountain at our own pace. And there had been people everywhere around on trail the whole time we'd been out there. And as I was climbing Blood, there was a guy there who was very creepy. Something was off. He was wearing a backpack, but there was another pack on the ground near him. He said it was also his. Everything about it just felt wrong. His face, he'd been beaten up. His face was swollen. It was all kinds of crazy. And that's when I realized, you know, even though I considered myself as hiking with two friends, I'd been seeing people nonstop. I was completely alone in the woods with a guy. I didn't know where the next closest person was. So even if you think you're with people, you're not always. Yeah. And Stomp, I apologize. I don't want to be a fear monger. And I know we talked about that last (laughs) week, but, um, you know, it's worth just calling out. No, I think it's important just to make note of it. Um, you're right. I mean, what is yeah. it? M- Mid March, AT starts really firing up. Yes. Yeah. 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 And I so, definitely don't think women should be hiking around afraid. That's, yeah, that's not necessary. But just keep your eyes open and have your wits about you. Yeah. It's just a good reminder that, like, you know, one out of every hundred people might be crazy. So just be aware. It's a lot of nonsense going on out there. So. Um, all right, so next subject here is, uh, you talked about getting pulled over, almost getting pulled over by, um, fishing game or whoever's in charge of the snowmobiles made me remember a story of my daughter when she was doing driving lessons. Mm -hmm. She got pulled over well on a lesson by a police officer. Oh, come on. Really? So yeah, yeah. She took like a, first of all, she accidentally cut the police officer off because she was pulling out of a blind turn. And then she took a left-hand turn that wasn't an illegal left-hand turn, but it was like a weird left-hand turn. So the police officer pulled her over. So she's like the one and only person that's been pulled over in one of those like student driver cars. Yeah, which which are labeled and tagged with driver insignia. That's weird. Yes. Wow, yeah. that's that's unusual. Exactly. She so, must have really been <laughs> pushed in the limits. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it was a little dramatic, oh, but I, I wanted to throw that story out there. That so, is funny. Emma, you had your moment on the Slasher podcast, so <laughs> good luck. Oh, my. Um, all right, Stomp. So I think we went a little long here, so we're going to skip the pop culture stuff, but uh, do you want to do the, the reminder about ski uh, ski fanatics and spinners? Yeah, let's see. We can get you to, uh, the old stickers at Ski Fanatics, which is right here on uh, in Campton, exit 28, or down in Andover at Spinner's Pizza Parlor right off of Dascom Road. So you can go visit Dolls and Pops down there and uh, get your stickers. And of course, if anybody's interested with uh, advertising through the podcast, drop us a direct message either on Instagram or Facebook or send us an email at slasherpodcast at gmail.com. That's S-L-A-S-R. And uh, we had one donation this week. Um, actually, two. Uh, UPS Hiking Club donated three coffees and it was a, sort of a neat post. They wrote something to the effect of, you know, work to hike and this and that. And they love listening while they're working. Um, and then we got another one from someone. It wasn't labeled, but uh, someone donated a coffee and we really appreciate that. So thank you very much. Welcome to episode 92 of the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast. This week, we welcome one of the queens of the Ozarks, 
our friend Andy Lowry. So Andy runs the Ozark Trail Section Hikers and Backpackers Group, which is a group that has over 12,000 members. She's an experienced hiker and backpacker, and she's here to talk about uh, a bunch of different topics, but we'll, uh, we'll talk about how she organizes new backpacking education programs. Um, she holds a wealth of knowledge around how best to start navigating the often confusing world of backpacking. Um, and then we'll, like I said, we'll learn a bunch about the Ozark. So all this, and we'll cover some recent hiking recaps and uh, recent search and rescue no- news. So I'm Mike. And I'm Stomp. Let's get started. And um, yeah, we've got a couple advertisers here. 48 Peaks Alzheimer's. Hike to fight Alzheimer's with 48 Peaks, a fundraising and awareness event for the Alzheimer's Association. Join 450 plus hikers this summer as we hike New Hampshire's 4,000 footers or create your own hiking adventure from a 52 of the view to a Prezi Traverse or climb your favorite mountain. Together, we will paint the mountains purple and raise vital funding to advance the care, support, and research efforts of the Alzheimer's Association. Visit alts.org, right slash 48 peaks. That's alz.org to learn more. And uh, we also have Vaucluse gear. A lot of folks are raving about this product. Uh, back, sweat, back sweat sucks in all types of weather and hikes. Not only is it uncomfortable, sweat is a risk factor, causing your core temperature to fluctuate if it doesn't evaporate off your back. Uh, I wonder if this would have come in handy over this super cold vortex weekend. Check out Vaucluse's Cool Dry Backpack Airflow Frame, a backpack accessory that installs in your favorite pack, sizes 18 liters to 65, and creates an airflow gap between you and your pack. Whether you're in hot or cold temps, even if you have a pack with a curved frame, the Cool Dry Frame is a real game changer when it comes to airflow. So visit vaucluseGear.com to order a Cool Dry Frame today. All right, so we're painting the mountains purple, and we're going to do it without sweating. <laughs> right. Yep. Cool backs. No chilly backs. Awesome. All right. So this is the part of the show where we talk about what we're drinking. So um, Andy, ladies first. What do you got? Anything good? So it's it's sad but true. I'm drinking water. Shame. I, I had this sitting next shame to me. Shame drop in this. I have it sitting next to me. I have I have a tropical beer hug from Goose shame. Island sitting next to me, but I haven't cracked shame. it open yet. Oh, you haven't? Okay. All right. I haven't. It's about 10%. You don't want me to get stupid later. Uh, All right. That's a good point. That's a beastly alcohol. So I have a note here. So you said you started using Untapped and then you've got a Zima story. What is this? So so you probably know the Untapped app, I assume. Yeah, I've heard of it. I haven't seen, I haven't used it, but I've heard of it. So I started using it because I've been drinking more micro brews and trying some different things. And I went through first as soon as I got on and I was just, you know, marking everything I could remember that I've ever tried. And I grew up in St. Louis, so I had to pop open the Anheuser-Busch list, right, and click almost everything on the list. And I started to laugh because I saw Zima on the list. And so I, oh, I yeah. checked it, you know, and kind of laughed and, and moved on. I, I think I had it, I don't know how many years ago, but I had it. So um, I sent out some some connection requests to my friends who use Untapped. And one of them very quickly sent me a note a couple hours later and said, hey, what's with the Zima? And I said, <laughs> well, you know, I told him the story and and he replied and he said yeah i've tried zima too he said but i sure as hell didn't check it <laughs> he said i'm not checking i'm not putting that out there so shout out to dave bernie he has tried zima all right well 
I've tried Zima. And I think I feel like Zima was like around when I was in college. Yeah, I remember totally. running around trying to get like alcohol for like, you know, we would just get beer for the guys, but then we would have girls that were our friends that we'd have to get like Purple Passion and Zima and like Cisco yes. and all this fruity stuff. But Zima I, was like not fruity. It's like a plain white clear liquor, right? Yeah, I was surprised yeah, it was, like I don't consider it a beer, but yeah, and it was years ago. So. I think it's like today's truly. I would probably compare it to that. Okay. Fair enough. So, you drinking anything, Stop? <laughs> you drinking a truly? Oh, no, yeah, right. No, I've just got a good old ginger kombucha. Just taking it easy tonight. Sorry. We're all bombing out on the beer talk. Mike's drinking alone. <laughs> right. I, I have one. It's. Um, I think this is a repeat from a couple of weeks ago, but I have Lawson's Finest liquids little sip ipa hmm. so um i think this is a connecticut brewery with 6.2 percent alcohol so it's not bad nice sounds good mm. yeah wish there was a little more sunshine to go along mm. with it but anyway so stomp recent hikes do you get anything i've been um i'm locked into the snowmobile guiding so i'm not going to be able to do anything until probably April at this point because I'm I'm out there every single day. But you know, like today, it's like I let's just talk about this for a second. I do virtual PT f- a couple days a week. How do you? It's such a weird schedule, Mike. I don't really like it to be honest with you. I love helping people virtually, and that's great. There's a need out there, but I don't actually like doing virtual being at home i find the the schedule to be very odd and i have to it's like i do have a little bit of time in the morning but to motivate to do something knowing i got to come back here and sit in front of a computer screen it's like it's not the best thing ever but th- this morning i did welch i went up uh to the ledges of dickie just something quick just to get some exercise but not a big fan of virtual <laughs> the schedule anyway yeah, i don't know i'm just I'm a creature of routine. I just, I get up, I go running, yeah. I have my coffee and then I get online at like 7.30 in the morning and I'm talking to my friends in India and Poland <laughs> and talking to my US friends in the afternoon oh. and then Costa Rica. That's so funny. I don't know. I just, I deal you know with it. You know what it probably is? I'm, I'm juggling so many different balls right now. I think it's just too drastic of a change from day to day. It's like I go from guiding to PT to, you know, it's like, it's, I don't know. I've got somewhat of a chaotic routine going right now. That isn't a routine. It's like every day it's crazy. But anyway, long story short. I'm like every day's, every day's groundhog day for me. So oh, yeah. I don't know, Andy, do you work from home or do you? Uh... No, I'm, I'm in every day. I'm in the office every day. I was going to say, my friends make jokes because I was happily unemployed for about three years and just went back to work in August. So I, I love my job. It's fantastic. But it is a job, right? I mean, I'm, I'm working and I wasn't. So mm-hmm. it's not quite the same. Still good, though. Yeah. Aren't you supposed to go yeah. back full time, like in person, Mike? Never. Oh, I thought that nice. was you, you were heading that way, direction. So you guys huh. have that shiny, no. you have that that shiny new building. We do. We got a shiny new building that is no longer um, being fully used. But, um, you know, there's some, I mean, there, we'll go go in for meetings and things like that. But there's no no plans to have us go back in for um, a permanent. There's a subset of managers and leaders, I think, that feel like, oh, yeah, I'd be much more effective if I had my team with me every day. But I would say like 90% of the company sort of like, no, we're fine with remote work. And if I'm close to an office, I'll go in if you give me that flexibility. But for the most part, like get everything done remotely. Interesting. So, 
Hopefully. Hopefully that won't change. But anyway, so I did I did a hike this weekend. Okay. So I did, I'm pursuing my winter 4,000 footer list. So um, Andy, we are very list oriented, gamified hikers up here. So I hiked on Mount Avalon, Mount Field, and Mount Tom. So um, first of all, I want to speak to the manager of the Highland Center stop. Do you know who that is? I do not. Oh, because I feel I feel like they should be plowing the depot parking lot like that. You remember the way we sat when we were waiting for Steve Mason? Sure. Yeah. That, that that lot's not plowed. It's just like the road is. You can park on the road apparently, but I was there so early there was no other cars on the road, and I'm ne- I'm afraid to be the first person to park along the snowbank because I'm afraid I'm going to get towed. Hmm. I wonder if that's um, just somebody else's property, like Hobo Railroad or whoever manages the railroad. Hmm. I don't know. It could be. Yeah, it's got to be a jurisdiction thing. But I went over to the Highland Center. I was like, I just park in the lot and walk over. But it was a ten dollar fee to park in the Highland lot for day use, which you know, AMC. I would pay it if I had to, but I didn't have to. So I went down to the other lot where you can park to get to the Mount Jackson trailhead, and then I walked up the quarter mile to get to the train station and then cut up the trails. Hmm. But anyway, if they could plow that, that would be nice. But I I did a um, clockwise loop. So I went up the AZ trail and then there's an intersection where you climb 600 feet to get to Avalon. It's 600 feet and a half a mile and it was so steep and I always forget how steep that section is but it was like insane calf killer. Um, It was also a little bit of an emotional hike for me because the last time I did that loop that was the day that my wife had called me and I had actually skipped going to Mount Tom because that was the day she found out that her mother, my mother-in-law, was going into the hospital. And unfortunately, you know, she passed mm-hmm. away a few days later. So it was a little bit of like it was bringing that back to me. I hadn't even thought about that until I was like climbing up Avalon. And then I started getting, thinking about that. And it was just like a, wasn't the funnest hike until I got up to Avalon. And luckily, I had this huge view. And I think that Kathy was looking down on me and gave me this awesome like sunrise. So it was sort mm, of like nice. a sad moment, but a happy moment. Yeah, that's nice. Yep. So um, then I, I headed over to, I headed up Mount Field. That's another steep hike from Avalon up to Field. Mm-hmm. And then just straight over to Mount Tom. But um, I feel like Mount Tom has my nomination for the peak that I hope gets hit by like a bomb genesis storm. Because I think if that if that summit get wiped out, you'd have some amazing views <laughs> up there if you got rid of the trees. Yeah, that's probably so. a good point. So, um, but I was thinking about like other summits that are grown in and I had like a list here stomp and I was like thinking Mount Tom, obviously Mount field is kind of grown in Mount Wolf. Mm-hmm. And then there's some summits that I think are like on their way. Like Tecumseh could easily get grown in sandwich dome, I think is already there. Pogus is already there. The Royces. I don't know if there's any other peaks that you go to that you're, you're thinking like might get grown in. Mm, I had a couple on my mind earlier, but I, I have forgotten which ones I was thinking of. But, um, you know, somebody is taking the um, axe to the trees of Tecumseh and Sandwich, so don't worry about it. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> yeah, I know that. Somebody's somebody's doing the Lord's work. Don't do that. We don't approve. Right. But, um, <laughs> oh, yeah, like yeah, East Osceola. That's one, right? But that, oh, yeah, that's been be grown in for quite some time, the height of those trees. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, 
the Hancock should get a little bit of a view. Um, I don't know, Galehead maybe. I haven't been up there, so going up there next weekend, I think. So we'll see how that goes. But I'm at 36 of 48, so I got 12 more to go. I think I'm going to knock off. I think the plan is we're going to do Galehead and then the Twins. So we're going to do like a big 15-mile loop. I'm going to get together with Jake and maybe one other person, maybe my new friend Steve that I met in the parking lot. I got to reach out nice. to Nice. Yeah. You think you might get it done before spring? I don't know. I don't know. I may um, wait until next winter and just have like one or two to finish up on. I'm going to finish in Canon, so I'll let you know. Yeah. Sounds good. All right. Notable hike of the week, Stomp? Yeah, we only have one, uh, but I want to backtrack. Um I've had some messages from several people about doing a bushwhack. And um, again, uh, until snowmobile guiding is over with, I won't be able to do anything. So I'm probably looking at shoulder season for a decent hike. And that'll actually be really nice. So the snow will be a little thinner, a little warmer, a little safer. So keep your ears open. Uh, I'll get something rolling. And uh, yeah, notable hike. There was only one. Uh, Shandy tagged us for... Oh, what was it? Oh, it was Jennings uh, Noon Peak and Sandwich Dome. So... Very cool, very cool. If you tag us, we will mention you on the podcast and get some props. Very good. So, sponsor stump? Yes, we have Sweet Beginnings Daycare, which is... Let me pull up my little note here. I don't have it memorized yet. Sweet Beginnings Daycare is a New Hampshire state-licensed child care provider that offers care for children from six weeks to 12 years with flexibility in before and after school care as well. Sweet Beginnings aims to instill a love for learning by providing a safe and positive experience within a loving and warm environment. Sweet Beginnings believes that this is a good foundation to teach children in order to prepare them for their future. For more information, contact Sweet Beginnings at 603-568-4530. Visit them at Sweet Beginnings Daycare on Facebook or email Shandy at ShandyElliott at Outlook.com. And then our last sponsor of the show is CS coffee cs instant coffee zero waste instant coffee that comes in compostable packets perfect for the trail and home each packet makes about 20 ounces of coffee so you can take one of them on an overnight trip and it makes two pretty good sized cups of coffee put it in your backpack find some hot water and you're good to go learn more by going to the show notes or google cs Instant Coffee, www.csinstant.coffee. Yeah, Stomp, and just a heads up for anybody that does go to the CS Coffee website, Rebecca Sperry, who's been on the show, I think, three or four times. Um, she's helped me co-host at least once. She has a post up on the CS Coffee uh, blog site, which um, basically is an article about how much time do you have? And it just sort of talks about her journey with uh, with cancer and her perspective around um, do what you need to do today because you don't know what tomorrow holds. So it's a really powerful piece, and I'll link it in the show notes. And it's, it's, a, it's a great article. Rebecca's a great writer. All right, Andy, it's your moment. Are you ready? I am. I am. Let's go. It's time for Slasher's Guest of the Week. Very cool. Very cool. Very, 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 very cool. All right. So we have 
we, we're welcoming Andy tonight. Andy's going to talk about um, a couple of things. Um, and I'm going to sort of give a recap about how I got to know you first, Andy, and then I'll ask you to introduce yourself. So as I, I was trying to remember this last week, I was like thinking back in my, my, my memory vault. And my recollection is, is that we had, I was in a couple of different social media groups on Facebook and we had like a group that um, had gotten sort of purged <laughs> from another group and oh, it funny. was a small group of friends. Somehow Andy ended up, somehow we started picking up people that weren't from New Hampshire and I think Andy was at an airport drinking at a bar and somehow stumbled into our Facebook group and was like, how did I end up getting surrounded by a bunch of wacky New Hampshire, Northeast White Mountain hikers. And then from there, we just have stayed connected through various um, social media groups and then just sort of getting to know each other, talking about gear. And, you know, I had actually sat in on, I think, a couple, one or two Zoom sessions, Andy, that you had presented on backpacking as I was starting to get into backpacking. So is that, is my memory correct or do you remember it differently? It's, it's, no, it's pretty close. I was um, I was traveling for work, and I was in D.C. actually at a hotel bar, and was a couple glasses of wine in, killing time, just sitting there playing on my phone. And I don't remember what group I joined, but it sort of became this rabbit hole. And I think by the end of the night, I was in about fifteen different bizarre groups. And Mike, at one point, you even shared a flowchart with me, explaining you ha- you had a flowchart that said what groups had broken off of where and 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 all that so that was kind of the the beginning of the end for me red flags go up when some dude whips out a flow chart of facebook group yeah see stomp even back then i was like mr data <laughs> data that's your trail yes. name data yeah, so. yeah cause i don't have a trail name but so andy why don't you introduce yourself and uh we'll get into the um the group in a moment but if you could just sort of give your background about sort of outdoor activities, backpacking, hiking, kayaking, cycling, however you want to introduce yourself. And then we'll talk a little bit about the Ozark Trail and then specifically about your your group that you lead. Sure. So I picked up hiking probably about 2016, just some local stuff, state parks, that sort of thing. Um, around 2018, I decided I wanted to start backpacking. So I'll leave that part for for a little later. Um, probably around 2020, I started cycling more. Um, I finished the Katy Trail, which is, um, I think it's about, gosh, 170 miles or so. It's the longest rails to trails trail in the country. Um, we have that here in Missouri. It kind of cuts across the state. So I did all that, some kind of bike touring, bike packing, some with staying in hotels. Um, and I'm almost finished with the greenways in the Great Rivers Greenways in St. Louis. That's about, I think, 160 miles, maybe something like that. Um, and just generally biking. But, you know, it's I got a 20-year-old trek, so I'm not out there setting any land speed records or doing it seriously. And then around the same year, I started kayaking. And I've done um, about 100 miles down the Mississippi, sleeping on sandbars and spent some time on the Missouri and paddled the boundary waters and a lot of the rivers in Missouri. We have an amazing set of rivers for paddling. Um, it's, it's, it's tremendous here. Our kind of um, south central Missouri just has some amazingly clear rivers. And we have the Ozark National Scenic Riverways here, which is the first federally, federally recognized kind of protected waterway for recreation. Got it. And then before 2016, were you were you an active person before that? Not really. 
No. Um, I had spent a number of years in the National Guard um, when I was younger. And so I had time being in the woods, but field training exercises are very different than backpacking and, you know, kind of playing around adventure stuff. So I would, I would do hikes occasionally now and then with my nieces and nephews. But no, I went from not really doing any of that to suddenly doing all of this. And, you know, it's, it's a bit of a, um, a cliche, I guess, because there was, there was a divorce there. And then I suddenly thought, what do I want to do? And changed up some things. Interesting. So do you, do you think that was the motivator to sort of get you to sort of just changing your perspective about, cause I, I have a friend that was a military guy and I always try to get him to go hiking. He's like, I spent enough time in the woods. I'm never going back. Um, was that sort of how you approached it until the divorce? No, no, I, um, I wasn't like that because I didn't spend a ton of time out with what I did in the military. Um, but it just, I don't know. I just sort of wanted to take it out there a little more. And I wanted to see things that I couldn't see by car. I think I wanted to get in there and, you know, there's so much that obviously you can hike to, you can paddle to, you can bike to that. You just can't do in a car. Yeah. Agreed. And now you're in Missouri. So the Ozark trail is sort of like the big trail system in that area. Can you talk a little bit about um, sort of what the Ozark Trail is, a little bit of the history, maybe your description of like, you know, what are the characteristics and and how popular it is? Sure. So um, it's not all that old. Um, Around 1976, the concept of an Ozark Trail kind of came up. it led to the first Ozark Trail draft in 1977. That involved um, seven governmental agencies, a private landowner, some environmental groups, and they developed what they called the Ozark Trail Council. And they did over 170 miles of construction in a decade. And then with some other existing trails, they got to a little over 200. And then this guy named John Roth came along. And John is sort of the very well-regarded godfather of the Ozark Trail. And and I should say, by the way, I'm a lifetime member of the Ozark Trail Association, but I'm not a board member. I'm not speaking for them. This is just kind of what I know. Um, John hiked the OT, and then he complained to the Forest Service about the state of the trail. It was overgrown. You know, he he had some issues with it. And the Forest Service said, great, come and help repair it. And then they were a little surprised when he showed up the next day ready to work. And so John um, really got things going, made a pitch to the council. He wanted to put together an agency that would get volunteers together. So in 2002, the Ozark Trail Association was founded and John was the first president. In 2008, the OT was named a National Recreational Trail. And then unfortunately, in 2009, John was killed in a tragic accident on his farm. So he has not seen what it has become. Um, Now there is a little over 400 miles of trail, and it's just truly an amazing system. It's it's very much um, what I would describe as a wilderness trail. You can go out and you can hike for three or four days and not see anybody else. I mean, that's not at all unusual. Yeah, it's it's pretty remote. It's not like uh, my impression is it's not like we have ex- like in New Hampshire. It's sort of like you, you go above tree line, you see these amazing scenic views, and then you go down into sort of the the green tunnel, and then you pop back up. But I think it's more 
like you said, a wilderness trail where you've got some views, but it's not really about sort of these big summits of mountains that you're dealing with. Correct. It's it's very much green trail. Um, there are some glades, there are some river views, some scenic views, um, but it's it's really wooded, and um, you know there are a lot of rocks, but I mean rocks that are moving rocks. Like I think Bobby calls them skull baby skull size rocks, and that's what you're dealing with is kind of about about that size. That'll probably get you censored. I shouldn't have said that one, but um, no, that's so, fine. You know, so you're you know you're hiking along. They're moving. Um, the most popular sections are probably the Tom Sock section, which actually is about the only section that has boulders and and things like that. Um, it has great views. It has amazing glades. It's just really a, a gorgeous section any time of year. And then the current river section is also very popular for the scenery. Um, you could see you have a good chance of seeing wild horses. We have four herds of wild horses in that section of Missouri, so they're fun to see. You know, along the trail, um, there's a nice waterfall there and some other stuff in that section and, and views of the current river. And then um, other popular sections are the Middle Fork section, and then this one. I'm I'm going to get trouble no matter how I say it. There are about three pronounce pronunciations of it, but it's the Courtois section is how I say it. Um, but those sections are farther north, and so you get a lot of people out of the more populated areas that come down and hike those. Interesting. And then I've got this question that I've always wondered about with the Ozark Trail. Is there's like a, if I recall the map correctly, is there like a little connecting circle somewhere in the middle there of the trail? Well, those sections aren't completely finished. So if if it was all done, there would be a circle with then pieces coming off of the tops of the circle and the bottom of the circle. But there are some disconnected okay. sections because landowner issues, essentially. Okay. And generally, how how receptive are the landowners um, in and around the trail? It sounds like you've got some holdouts, but um, have you seen a lot of people that have been willing to sort of donate their land or allow uh, easements for hikers to go through? It varies. We have quite a few landowners that do have the trail routed across their property, um, but a lot of the trail is in the national forest on on forest land. Um, and there are some other agencies that own land that it, it crosses. So some some landowners are willing, some are not. The interesting thing is that some of the landowners who aren't, the feedback that the association hears is, you know, they're concerned about the hikers, I think, stealing stuff, bringing in crime, you know, they don't understand the value of what we're walking around on our backs with, you know, in, in gear costs. Yeah. We're not, we're not going to come, you know, steal something off their property. We'd have to carry it. But, um, you know, so yeah. there, there are some holdouts who have some concerns. Interesting. And I think a lot of people in the Northeast, like when we hear the Ozark Trail, and I apologize ahead of time, but like a lot of times, like we think of the brand that Walmart sells, which honestly, like if you're a beginning hiker or you're like even an experienced hiker, like I would not shy away from those brands sometimes. Like it depends on the use case. But can you explain like what's the history there? Like how did Walmart, how were they allowed to sort of trademark Ozark Trail brand while also having... You guys also having the Ozark, you know, trail as well. You know, I, I I can't speak firsthand. What I suspect is that they applied for the trail for the trademark, and no one objected um, because Walmart does own the trademark Ozark Trail, and they, um, you know, obviously have a lot of gear there. And I may mention some more of that with the beginner backpacking program, but 
they, um, one of the interesting things is that the OTA, the association, which is tiny and has one paid employee, um, their phone voicemail is constantly full because it's complaints about Ozark Trail equipment and gear. They get really? calls, emails nonstop. And it's really interesting. I've seen some of the email exchanges when they explain to people, hey, you need to call Walmart. We're a trail association. All they get back is hate. I mean, it's ridiculous what they deal with from people who are mad about their Ozark Trail gear. Interesting. And then can you talk about um, the culture? So in the Northeast, and I think you probably have picked some of this up, but like we, and I said this earlier, like we tend to gamify our hiking. So we have a list of peaks that we want to summit. We have like um, tracing or redlining of trail systems that we like to do. Um, We track like this thing called the grid, which is doing the 4,000 footers you know, every month of the the year, we've got like different lists of 52 with a view, the terrifying. So we, we gamify everything. Does, do do you do that in the Ozark trails or is that just completely foreign to you? In a way, but a little differently, um, the OT is broken into sections. And so it becomes about completing all the sections or doing your miles to finish this section. You need to complete all the sections to finish the trail. And it's similar with the Ozark Highland trail. Um, you know, it's the same kind of thing, but we don't we don't have peaks to bag. I mean, the high point in Missouri is about seventeen seventy five, so we don't have the kind okay. of elevation that you know that that you all have. Um, it's really more about the sections. As far as um, you know, the mix between day hikers and th- and through hikers and section hikers, wh- what's the the volume there? I get the impression that there is a lot a lot of backpacking and seg- uh, section hiking that goes on. Mm-hmm. There's there's a lot of backpacking of it. Um, day hiking definitely happens. It's a little harder just because it is more remote and, you know, we don't have a big shuttle system. So it can be a little more challenging to set up a day hike unless you just want to do an out and back. Um, there are people that through hike it. Throughing it can be a little challenging from a logistics perspective. The nearest town to the trail at one point is three miles, and that's as close as it gets. So there really isn't a place to stop and, and do a resupply if you want to do that. And a through hike is about 230, 240 miles. Um, so a lot of people will cache you know, a food storage, or they'll have someone come down and meet them halfway through a friend or someone. So the logistics of it can be a little more challenging unless you're super fast and want to carry all your food. Interesting. And then seasonally, uh, and I don't even, I feel like I should know this, but like, do you get a lot of snow or extreme weather? I feel like you have to worry about tornadoes, right? No, we, Mm -hmm. they they just show up. You don't really plan your trips around tornadoes (laughs) because you don't, you don't always have much. You you might have a couple days of, oh, it kind of looks like tornadic weather, but you you don't really know. Um, it's it's kind of interesting to be out there though when when it gets a little um, little sporty. But um, <laughs> we get we get cold and it, it could be anything. So for example, in January you could have a sixty five degree day and and you know later that week have a fifteen degree day. It's just it's so up and down all the time. I mean summers are definitely hot and can be extremely hot nineties you know, high 90s. Um, so they can be pretty warm. Spring and fall are great. But again, your weather shifts so much. And and winter, um, you know, you may be down around 15 or so overnight at most of the coldest times. I mean, it can get colder, but but doesn't always get that cold. So, so there's your non-answer. <laughs> 
Yeah, exactly. And do you have the same sort of foliage that we have out, out here in the Northeast in the fall? With the fall colors, yes. It's a beautiful trail in the fall. Yeah. It's gorgeous, yes. Interesting. So that would be, is that your favorite time of the year? You know, fall's nice because the temperature change and, and all that. Um, sometimes, you know, you're you're hiking through there and you've got literally a foot deep of leaves that you're just kind of kicking as you as you hike along because it is so wooded. So some people like it, some don't, but it's it's gorgeous. Interesting. So you got about 230, 250 miles worth of trail right now, but you, you put in the notes here, and I think you had sent me a note sort of as a reminder that there is another trail, which is called the Ozark Highlands Trail, which connects um, down to Arkansas. And then there's some plans or discussion around connecting both of those trails to make like a giant trans-Ozark trail? Yes. So the OT actually has about 400 miles of trail, but some of it is disconnected. They're small disconnected pieces. So the through hike is about 230, but over 400 overall. Um, the Ozark Highlands Trail, which is in Arkansas, has about 165 miles in it. And there's construction happening in Missouri and in Arkansas to connect those trails. And that would be the Trans-Ozark, and it would be over 700 miles, with plans to eventually connect the northern end to St. Louis. So you could fly into St. Louis, which is you know middle of the state, halfway up, and hike down into Arkansas from there. But that's, I mean... We're talking years and years away. Okay. Well, in the future, but that that is interesting. And then as far as um, you had talked about kayaking and, and cycling, is there any opportunity to do like bike packing or uh, doing a combined sort of um, backpacking and kayaking type of trip? Or how, how do you manage those? Absolutely. So there's, there's a lot of bike packing on the OT. Um, there's huge mountain biker usage on the trail. They're all over the place. There are a couple areas where it isn't allowed just for, for general reasons, rehabbing areas or something, but they're they're out there a lot. So you can definitely bike pack it. There are people that do um, kayak and hike it. They're actually, the OTA has a challenge set up where you hike up a certain way and then you paddle back. They have it set up with an outfitter who provides the canoes. Um, they actually have, they have a fun event called the Three-Legged Monster Race. They started a couple years ago and it's a two-person team. One person runs a half marathon on trail while the other person cycles about 26 miles. They meet at the outfitter and then they canoe the final leg of the race. So that's kind of a fun event. Stomp. We got to do that. <laughs> yeah. Sounds good to me. Get your bike, get your bike ready to go. <laughs> so, awesome. Yeah, that sounds fun. That one's a good time. Uh, Mike, you should, you should come down. We have the Ozark Trail 100 every fall. You can come run a hundred miler. Oh my goodness. Tempting, tempting. I have to, I had to get trained up on that. But what about um, search and rescue? So Andy has a search and rescue story stomp that we'll we'll dig into in a minute. But sure. do you know, do you have any sense about like how is search and rescue handled? Do you have volunteer groups or is it mostly like law enforcement and forest service that manage search and rescue calls? And can you talk about volume or your impression of it? Sure. So most of the OT is within the Mark Twain National Forest or within the Ozark National Scenic Riverways. So both federal. Um, it seems like from what I've observed that anytime someone is lost, and I say someone, not hiker, very intentionally, because we really don't have many situations where a hiker is lost. It's usually someone from the surrounding area, 
was near the trail and got lost or something. Um, it seems like it's the local sheriff's department that is kind of leading that. I don't have clarity on when or how they engage with the Forest Service. I know obviously the Forest Service is there. They're out helping with things, but I don't quite know how all of that happens. But it, but it does seem when we see a report, there's someone missing. It's usually someone from the sheriff's department running the show. The, one of the things that's interesting is even when, you know, when you're on trail, even though it is remote, the trail does cross roads. And so if you get lost, you're probably going to hit a road sooner or later. Um, so we don't see big problems. You know, it's not like with you all where you climb and there's just nothing up there and nowhere to go. It's a little different. Interesting. And then um, do you have any sense of the volume? Like, do you, is, is your impression that there's like a lot of search and rescues like every weekend or is it pretty rare for people to get in trouble? No, it's, it's really rare. I mean, so I started the group in 2018 and have been pretty plugged in since then. And I think I only remember one occasion when someone was lost and that was the situation that our group helped with, but I'm, I'm not aware of major search, you know, efforts for lost hikers. Interesting. All right. So, so Stomp, Andy has two stories that we're going to cover. One involves her. The other involves like her group helping to organize. So Andy, why don't you, (laughs) and Stomp, you may have some questions jumping in, but Andy, why don't you talk about the, the sort of um, crowdsourcing group um, assist, and then we'll talk about your own personal situation afterwards. All right. So we, um, I had someone contact me and her boyfriend was backpacking the OT. She was supposed to meet him to bring him a resupply. And they were supposed to have met three days prior and he hadn't shown up and she hadn't heard from him. So she was understandably panicking. Um, His parents had basically ordered her not to contact the authorities because they didn't want to embarrass him. And he's, you know, he's, he's three days delayed. So at the time we'd had a lot of rain and one of the problems you can run into on the OT, there are a lot of creeks and there are a lot of creeks that will flood and make things impassable at times. And so when there's a lot of rain, you know, it just, it just causes issues. Um, So she was adamant that the authorities not be contacted, but she didn't know what to do. So I was chatting with the OTA president and, um, you know, was debating, should we notify the authorities anyway, regardless of what his parents want, because this could be a dangerous situation. So we decided um, that was, it was very late on a Friday evening. Um, So we decided to see if people wanted to go out and hike the trail in the area we thought he'd be in the next day and kind of figured if we hadn't found him or any sign of him by about noon, we'd probably make a phone call regardless of what his family wanted. So I asked for volunteers to go hike, ended up getting plugged in with a mountain biking group, with a trail running group, with an overlander group. And we had about 150 volunteers to help look in one way or the other. So I had to start getting information from people about, you know, how far can you hike? I don't know if the volunteers are people that want to hike 10 miles or two miles. So they kind of gave me their distances. And then I told everybody, okay, go to sleep plan to get up and go in the morning and I'll have a plan for you when you wake up. So I stayed up for hours kind of putting together this plan of who was hiking where or biking or running or 
overlanding, you know, what, whatever they were doing. And it was a little more challenging because with certain creeks up, you know, I knew there were probably some places they couldn't get across. So I couldn't have somebody hike, you know, in from a forest service road and down a few miles because there was a creek there. So I had to have someone else coming up on the other side of the creek from, you know, a different access point and, so there were a lot of cutoffs like that. So by the time everyone got up the next morning, we had a plan. And it was also helpful because we had been able to track him a little bit. So there are some primitive campgrounds in that area. We had people reporting, seeing him, sharing food with him. So we were pretty sure he wasn't actually out of food yet because he had eaten a couple meals with other people. And we kind of figured out where we thought he would be, which was Hazel Creek Campground. Um, Hazel has the water come up there. It's definitely impassable. Once you get to that point, you can't continue on on the trail. And so that morning, everybody headed out to do their things. And I got a call from the girlfriend and she said, he just called me. He like hitched a ride into town. He was at that campground. Um, one of the women that had reported seeing him to us told us that she had camped there with him. He mentioned he was running late to contact his girlfriend, hadn't made their meetup. And she offered to let him use her Garmin to contact the girlfriend. He said, no, no, that's okay. And then as the water started rising, her group packed up and left and said, it's not safe here. You should leave. And he decided to stay. And so what had happened is he ended up on a little bit of enough of a high point that as the water came up, he was surrounded and couldn't get out for two days. Right, makes sense. So he sat there on his little island for two days and was exactly where we thought he might be. That was that was our number one spot. I was working with a couple others, and that's exactly where we thought he was. And he had apparently tried climbing a pole to see if he could get cell phone reception. And so once the water went down enough that he could hike out, he left and left his gear there. So our searchers got there, found his gear before I could get in touch with them to tell them that, hey, we, you know, we've heard from the guy, got a hitch into town. So one of our folks then went and picked him up at the payphone where he was or the, the little place where he was and, um, you know, drove him back to pack up his gear and then drove him 90 minutes to meet his girlfriend to pick him up. It was it was yeah. like a class in making bad decisions for him. Yeah. And this was all coordinated through a Facebook group. Correct. Yeah. As soon as I said, hey, we have a missing hiker. We had, like I said, we had about 150 people and we had almost 200 miles of trail covered in our plan. We didn't think we needed that much, but you just, you know, we didn't know exactly where he was. Um, we had kind of figured out his hiking pace based on where he'd made it to when he started, where people had seen him. I mean, within, within 90 minutes of putting out that he was missing, we knew where he'd been when at a couple different places. We knew he'd shared meals with people at campgrounds that had fed him. And so he probably had more food than, you know, than his girlfriend realized. So it was, it was interesting sort of running that down. And, you know, the, the response in the group was pretty interesting because people were saying like, I love this group because now I know if I go missing on the OT, you know, like people, people are coming for me. I don't, you know, I, they're going to, they're going to drag me out of there. And um, I heard from someone, one of the national forest rangers, and he said, Hey, I just, I heard about this and I, I got in your group and I see what's happening. He said, if we ever have a missing hiker, can we call you guys? Because we can't mobilize this many people this quickly. And it was just, you know, oh, it was wow. hiker, it was hikers helping other hikers, you know, um, 
Yeah. And it's, it is interesting. It's a good perspective because I think we, we're very New Hampshire focused and we have a very structured, you know, the Forest Service engages with a number of different volunteer groups that are trained specifically for search and rescue. And it sounds like in New Hampshire, there's a volume where that's necessary. It doesn't sound like in the Ozarks that it's as necessary and they rely on local law enforcement. So it's just, it's, it's interesting to get a different kind of model stomp, don't you think? Yeah, I'm still trying to get my head around it. So you're saying that there's local uh, sheriffs or um, emergency services that respond to certain sections, um, but there, I mean, is there a lack of forest ranger staff to, to pursue a call like this? I don't quite understand it. You know, I'm, I'm not sure the the answer and and the forest service may be involved we just hear it through scanner traffic through things we see online so i don't i don't know if perhaps the the forest service is working in conjunction with them and is you know maybe even running the show and it's just the local sheriffs that are talking to the news i'm i'm just not sure of the details of that i don't you know i don't see Mm. that part of it so i'm i'm not certain yeah and, and year by year, do you have an idea of how many missions or calls you would typically see in the area? I I don't. And and again, since 2018, when I got when I started the group, I'm not aware for the OT of anybody being rescued, you know, being lost or things like that. I mean, I'm yeah. sure there have probably been some yeah. injuries and some carryouts, but I'm not aware of of lost situations other than that that gentleman. Gotcha. Yeah, the culture up here, um, we would never consider on you know social media asking the public's help to do uh, a rescue like that with high water in particular, just because the the risk to the other people going out. You know, you you would create other rescue situations, perhaps. I and I don't have a, an idea of what this high water situation was like, if it was rapid moving or whatever. But yeah, that's the dynamic up here. Um, and even recently, with some of the mountain, with some of the mountain rescues in the winter, um, we you know absolutely discourage people uh, assisting or helping just due to that fact, because you just don't want to put anybody else in jeopardy or harm. So I'm just curious, uh, the culture down there. So to, to be clear, nobody was to be getting near the water. They were just basically hiking the trail in the sections that were safe and fine to hike. They didn't have water issues. Um, it's not like anybody was going along a river bank. It was nothing like that. Um, but but there are a lot of times in Missouri where they call out for volunteers. But our, understand, our terrain is very different than your terrain. So, you know, if, if, if a little girl goes missing in Missouri, they call for local volunteers and, you know, you see them out kind of essentially in a police line walking through fields and things. It's just very different terrain, very different situation. Our, our terrain, you know, 90% of it is not a dangerous situation at all. I mean, there are always drop-offs and things like that, but it's just completely different than what you all have. Right. Different culture. And it's just, it's a very, it's all a very remote area. You know, they're just, you, you couldn't do it just with formal groups and things. Wow. I would love to see that. So maybe someday I will get out there, but Andy, this was great. You did excellent. Thank you. It's a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
you want to learn more about the topics covered in today's show, please check out the show notes and safety information at slasherpodcast.com. That's S-L-A-S-R podcast.com. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you'll join us next week for another great show. Until then, on behalf of Mike and Stomp, get out there and crush some mega peaks. Now covered in scratches, blisters, and bug bites, Chris Staff wanted to complete his most challenging day hike ever. Fishing game officers say the hiker from Florida activated an emergency beacon yesterday morning. He was hiking along the Appalachian Trail when the weather started to get worse. Officials say the snow was piled up to three feet in some spots, and there was a wind chill of minus one degree. And there's three words to describe this race. Do we all know what they are? Lieutenant James Neeland of New Hampshire Fish and Game. Lieutenant, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. What are some of the most common mistakes you see people make when they're heading out on the trails to hike here in New Hampshire? It seems to me the most common is being unprepared. I think if they just simply visited uh, hikesafe.com and got a list of the 10 essential items and had those in their packs, they probably would have no need to ever call us at all. 